Section 8 of The Common Reader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Eileen. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. Rambling Round Evelyn. Should you wish to make sure that your birthday will be celebrated three hundred years hence, your best course is undoubtedly to keep a diary. Only first be certain that you have the courage to lock your genius in a private book, and the humour to gloat over a fame that will be yours only in the grave. For the good diarist writes either for himself alone, or for a posterity so distant that it can safely hear every secret and justly weigh every motive. For such an audience there is need neither of affectation nor of restraint. Sincerity is what they ask, detail, volume. Skill with a pen comes in conveniently, but brilliance is not necessary. Genius is a hindrance, even, and should you know your business and do it manfully, posterity will let you off mixing with great men, reporting famous affairs or having lain with the first ladies in the land. The diary, for whose sake we are remembering the three hundredth anniversary of the birth of John Evelyn, is a case in point. It is sometimes composed like a memoir, sometimes jotted down like a calendar, but he never used its pages to reveal the secrets of his heart, and all that he wrote might have been read aloud in the evening with a calm conscience to his children. If we wonder, then, why we still trouble to read what we must consider the uninspired work of a good man, we have to confess, first, that diaries are always diaries, books, that is, that we read in convalescence, on horseback, in the grip of death. Second, that this reading, about which so many fine things have been said, is for the most part mere dreaming and idling, lying in a chair with a book, watching the butterflies on the dahlias, a profitless occupation which no critic has taken the trouble to investigate, and on whose behalf only the moralist can find a good word to say. For he will allow it to be an innocent employment, and happiness, he will add, though derived from trivial sources, has probably done more to prevent human beings from changing their religions and killing their kings than either philosophy or the pulpit. It may well be, indeed, before reading much further in Evelyn's book, to decide where it is that our modern view of happiness differs from his. Ignorance, surely ignorance is at the bottom of it, his ignorance and our comparative erudition. No one can read the story of Evelyn's foreign travels without envying in the first place his simplicity of mind, in the second his activity. To take a simple example of the difference between us, that butterfly will sit motionless on the dahlia while the gardener trundles his barrow past it, but let him flick the wings with the shadow of a rake, and off it flies, up it goes, instantly on the alert. So, we may reflect, a butterfly sees, but does not hear, and here no doubt we are much on a par with Evelyn. But as for going into the house to fetch a knife, and with that knife dissecting a red admiral's head, as Evelyn would have done, no sane person in the twentieth century would entertain such a project for a second. Individually, we may know as little as Evelyn, 
but collectively we know so much that there's little incentive to venture on private discoveries. We seek the encyclopedia, not the scissors, and know in two minutes not only more than was known to Evelyn in his lifetime, but that the mass of knowledge is so vast that it is scarcely worth while to possess a single crumb. Ignorant, yet justly confident that with his own hands he might advance not merely his private knowledge, but the knowledge of mankind. Evelyn dabbled in all the arts and sciences, ran about the continent for ten years, gazed with unflagging gusto upon hairy women and rational dogs, and drew inferences and framed speculations which are now only to be matched by listening to the talk of old women round the village pump. The moon, they say, is so much larger than usual this autumn that no mushrooms will grow, and the carpenter's wife will be brought to bed of twins. So Evelyn, fellow of the Royal Society, a gentleman of the highest culture and intelligence, carefully noted all comets and portents, and thought it a sinister omen when a whale came up the Thames. In 1658, too, a whale had been seen. And that year died Cromwell. Nature, it seems, was determined to stimulate the devotion of her seventeenth-century admirers by displays of violence and eccentricity from which she now refrains. There were storms, floods, and droughts, the Thames frozen hard, comets flaring in the sky. If a cat so much as kittened in Evelyn's bed, the kitten was inevitably gifted with eight legs, six ears, two bodies, and two tails but to return to happiness. It sometimes appears that if there's an insoluble difference between our ancestors and ourselves, it is that we draw our happiness from different sources. We rate the same things at different values. Something of this we may ascribe to their ignorance and our knowledge. But are we to suppose that ignorance alters the nerves and the affections? Are we to believe that it would have been an intolerable penance for us to live familiarly with the Elizabethans? Should we have found it necessary to leave the room because of Shakespeare's habits, and to have refused Queen Elizabeth's invitation to dinner? Perhaps so. For Evelyn was a sober man of unusual refinement, and yet he pressed into a torture chamber as we crowd to see the lions fed. They first bound his wrists with a strong rope or small cable and one end of it to an iron ring made fast to the wall, about four feet from the floor, and then his feet with another cable, fastened about five feet farther than his utmost length, to another ring on the floor of the room. And thus suspended, and yet lying but aslant, they slid a horse of wood under the rope which bound his feet, which so exceedingly stiffened it as severed the fellow's joints in miserable sort drawing him out at length in an extraordinary manner, he having only a pair of linen drawers upon his naked body. And so on. Evelyn watched this to the end, and then remarked that the spectacle was so uncomfortable that I was not able to stay the sight of another. As we might say, that the lions growl so loud, and the sight of raw meat is so unpleasant that we will now visit the penguins. Allowing for his discomfort, there's enough discrepancy between his view of pain and ours 
to make us wonder whether we see any fact with the same eyes, marry any woman from the same motives, or judge any conduct by the same standards. To sit passive when muscles tore and bones cracked, not to flinch when the wooden horse was raised higher, and the executioner fetched a horn and poured two buckets of water down the man's throat, and to suffer this iniquity on a suspicion of robbery which the man denied. All this seems to put Evelyn in one of those cages where we still mentally seclude the riffraff of Whitechapel. Only it is obvious that we have somehow got it wrong. If we could maintain that our susceptibility to suffering and love of justice were proof that all our humane instincts were as highly developed as these, and then we could say that the world improves, and we with it. But let us get on with the diary. In 1652, when it seemed that things had settled down unhappily enough, all being entirely in the rebels' hands, Evelyn returned to England with his wife, his tables of veins and arteries, his Venetian glass, and the rest of his curiosities, to lead the life of a country gentleman of strong royalist sympathies at Deptford. What with going to church and going to town, settling his accounts and planting his garden, I planted the orchard at Say's Court, New Moon, Wind West. His time was spent much as ours is. But there was one difference which it is difficult to illustrate by a single quotation, because the evidence is scattered all about in little insignificant phrases. The general effect of them is that he used his eyes. The visible world was always close to him. The visible world has receded so far from us that to hear all this talk of buildings and gardens, statues and carving, as if the look of things assailed one out of doors as well as in, and were not confined to a few small canvases hung upon the wall, seems strange. No doubt there are a thousand excuses for us, but hitherto we have been finding excuses for him. Wherever there was a picture to be seen by Giulio Romano, Polydor, Guido, Raphael, or Tintoretto, a finely built house, a prospect, or a garden nobly designed, Evelyn stopped his coach to look at it, and opened his diary to record his opinion. On August 27, Evelyn, with Dr. Wren and others, was in St. Paul's surveying the general decay of that ancient and venerable church, held with Dr. Wren another judgment from the rest, and had a mind to build it with a noble cupola a form of church-building not as yet known in England, but of wonderful grace, in which Dr. Wren concurred. Six days later the fire of London altered their plans. It was Evelyn again who, walking by himself, chanced to look in the window of a poor solitary thatched house in a field in our parish, and there saw a young man carving at a crucifix was overcome with an enthusiasm which does him the utmost credit, and carried grindling gibbons at his carving to court. Indeed, it is all very well to be scrupulous about the sufferings of worms, and sensitive to the dues of servant girls. But how pleasant also, if, with shut eyes, one could call up street after street of beautiful houses. A flower is red, the apples rosy gilt in the afternoon sun, a picture has charm, especially as it displays the character of a grandfather, 
and dignifies a family descended from such a scowl. But these are scattered fragments, little relics of beauty in a world that has grown indescribably drab. To our charge of cruelty, Evelyn might well reply by pointing to Bayswater and the purlieus of Clapham, and if he should assert that nothing now has character or conviction, that no farmer in England sleeps with an open coffin at his bedside to remind him of death, we could not retort effectually offhand. And true, we like the country. Evelyn never looked at the sky. But to return. After the restoration, Evelyn emerged in full possession of a variety of accomplishments which in our time of specialists seems remarkable enough. He was employed on public business. He was secretary to the Royal Society. He wrote plays and poems. He was the first authority upon trees and gardens in England. He submitted a design for the rebuilding of London. He went into the question of smoke and its abatement. The lime trees in St. James's Park being, it is said, the result of his cogitations. He was commissioned to write a history of the Dutch War. In short, he completely outdid the squire of the princess, whom in many respects he anticipated. A lord of fat prize oxen and of sheep, a raiser of huge melons and of pine, a patron of some thirty charities, a pamphleteer on guano and on green, a quarter-sessions chairman, abler none. All that he was, and shared with Sir Walter another characteristic which Tennyson does not mention. He was, we cannot help suspecting, something of a bore, a little censorious, a little patronizing, a little too sure of his own merits, and a little obtuse to those of other people. Or what is the quality, or absence of quality, that checks our sympathies partly, perhaps, it is due to some inconsistency which it would be harsh to call by so strong a name as hypocrisy. Though he deplored the vices of his age, he could never keep away from the centre of them. The luxurious dallying and profaneness of the court, the sight of Mrs. Nelly looking over her garden wall and holding very familiar discourse with King Charles on the green walk below, caused him acute disgust. Yet he could never decide to break with the court and retire to my poor but quiet villa, which was, of course, the apple of his eye and one of the show-places in England. Then, though he loved his daughter Mary, his grief at her death did not prevent him from counting the number of empty coaches drawn by six horses apiece that attended her funeral. His women friends combined virtue with beauty to such an extent that we can hardly credit them with wit into the bargain. Poor Mrs. Godolphin, at least, whom he celebrated in a sincere and touching biography, loved to be at funerals, and chose habitually the driest and leanest morsels of meat, which may be the habits of an angel, but do not present her friendship with Evelyn in an alluring light. But it is Pepys who sums up our case against Evelyn, Pepys who said of him after a long morning's entertainment. In fine, a most excellent person he is, and must be allowed a little for a little conceitedness, but he may well be so, being a man so much above others. The words exactly hit the mark. A most excellent person he was, but a little conceited. 
purpose it is who prompts us to another reflection, inevitable, unnecessary, perhaps unkind. Evelyn was no genius. His writing is opaque rather than transparent. We see no depths through it, nor any very secret movements of mind or heart. He can neither make us hate a regicide nor love Mrs. Godolphin beyond reason. But he writes a diary, and he writes it supremely well. Even as we drowse, somehow or other the bygone gentleman sets up, through three centuries, a perceptible tingle of communication, so that, without laying stress on anything in particular, stopping to dream, stopping to laugh, stopping merely to look, we are yet taking notice all the time. His garden, for example. How delightful is his disparagement of it, and how acid his criticism of the gardens of others. And then, we may be sure, the hens at Say's court laid the very best eggs in England, and when the Tsar drove a wheelbarrow through his hedge, what a catastrophe it was, and we can guess how Mrs. Evelyn dusted and polished, and how Evelyn himself grumbled, and how punctilious and efficient and trustworthy he was, how prone to give advice, how ready to read his own works aloud, and how affectionate withal lamenting bitterly but not effusively, for the man with the long-drawn sensitive face was never that, the death of the little prodigy Richard, and recording how, after evening prayers, was my child buried near the rest of his brothers, my very dear children. He was not an artist, no phrases linger in the mind, no paragraphs build themselves up in memory. But, as an artistic method, this of going on with the day's story circumstantially, bringing in people who will never be mentioned again, leading up to crises which never take place, introducing Sir Thomas Brown, but never letting him speak, has its fascination. All through his pages, good men, bad men, celebrities, non-entities, are coming into the room and going out again. The greater number we scarcely notice. The door shuts upon them and they disappear. But now and again the sight of a vanishing coat-tail suggests more than a whole figure sitting still in a full light. They have struck no attitude, arranged no mantle. Little they think that for three hundred years and more they will be looked at in the act of jumping a gate, or observing, like the old Marquis of Argyle, that the turtle-doves and the aviary are owls. Our eyes wander from one to the other. Our affections settle here or there. On hot-tempered Captain Bray, for instance, who was choleric, had a dog that killed a goat, was for shooting the goat's owner, was for shooting his horse when it fell down a precipice. On Mr. Saladine, on Mr. Saladine's beautiful daughter, on Captain Bray lingering at Geneva to make love to Mr. Saladine's daughter, on Evelyn himself, most of all, grown old, walking in his garden at Rotten, his sorrows smoothed out, his grandson doing him credit, the Latin quotations falling pat from his lips, his trees flourishing, and the butterflies flying and flaunting on his dahlias, too. End of section 8